Greetings, internet friends. Welcome to Smoke and Science, the podcast put on by our team at Smoke and All, where two pharmaceutical scientists break down the research of cannabis and other natural products and how you can use this information in your everyday lives. My name is Riley. And I'm Yabi. And I am Andy. We all love flour, and this episode is going to be special because our whole team here is going to talk about what we love about flour, why flour is so unique, and why cannabis is so unique. All right, let's do it. Flour is the best. Whoa, whoa, whoa. I have a couple really important announcements before we get started. We hit 25,000 downloads and broke into the top five for Apple Podcast Natural Sciences charts. So thank you all so much. We're so grateful to everyone who listens. We're also excited because we are now selling hemp smoke and all. So if you want to give it a try, head over to profoundnaturals.com. That's all one word and we'll link it in the description as well. Okay, now we're ready to roll. Welcome to Smokin' Science, nothing but the facts about our favorite plants. Let's first dive into what is flower because I think we're used to seeing flowers as these like beautiful pink or orange yellow flowers on different plants. But with the cannabis plant, the flower that we're used to or that we use is the the nug, the bud of the flower, and it doesn't look like a lot of other flowers that you're used to seeing. The best part is you get to eat or smoke with your eyes first. Buds can be beautiful, and there's a million different names for them. Weed, pot, dope, that one people don't like anymore. Nugs, uh, nugs trees, uh, you name it. I mean, the, in the old school days, it was like beasters, mids, KB. You know, there's a bunch of different slang words for them. I'm sure everybody right now is thinking about 400 different ones that we didn't just mention. But the flower is like a beautiful meal when you go to a five-star restaurant. It's like, eat with your eyes first. Look at it. It's pretty. You can look at it and smell it and pick it apart and they all have different smells on the inside than they do on the outside and you're looking at the trichomes and the density of the trichomes and you know that's like a whole experience by itself before you even pack up a bowl or a joint and enjoy we should talk about trichomes more because trichomes uh, a lot of plants have trichomes but the trichomes on the cannabis plant are part of what makes it so special so trichomes they if, if anyone's in front of a computer or something, you should Google a picture of a cannabis trichome because they're so cool. They look alien-like. And these trichomes are little manufacturers of cannabinoids and terpenes and these really special molecules that we love because they have activity in our body, but they're also protecting the plant and they're all being made in these unique structures called trichomes. So if you've ever looked at a nug and you've seen that it's frosty on the outside, when you're looking at it, it looks almost like almost like there's a little bit of like, not the hair follicles, because they are also our hairs, um, but the really, really tiny, tiny, tiny little droplet looking things. Those are the trichomes. And actually, we will link on our Instagram a picture of trichomes from one of Andy's grows. I think they're beautiful. And they are. It is eat, feasting with your eyes first. Trichomes are one of my favorite things to see on the flower. When I pick up flower, one of the first things I look for is what do the because when the trichrome when the trichomes are um, dried and cured properly, they are round, and that they have a look to them that's very organic. It makes the flower look very you know 
curvy and appealing. Um, and these trichomes are on the outside of the flower, and they're what contain all of the good stuff that makes us feel anything. And something to add, under a microscope or a pocket loop, they look a lot different than when you're just looking at it visually. But they tell a lot visually about the maturity of the plant when you're growing, too. So a lot of growers, without looking through a pocket loop or without getting cannabinoid profiles tested before harvesting, you look at the trichomes, and whether it's a you know old rumor or wives' tale or whatever you want to call it at this point, a lot of people still do this, right, where the trichomes will start out looking very glassy-like. And then they will transform into what is more milky looking. And then they will transform into what is amber looking. Many growers use the color of the trichomes to gauge the harvest time. And when you see the trichomes change color, you're actually looking at the accumulation of compounds in the trichome. The white is due to THCA in high abundance beginning to precipitate out. And the amber color is due to the presence of terpenes that have been exposed to oxygen, giving them color. And it's been said that the longer you let them go, the more amber colors will be present. So as a good way of deciding when to harvest your plants, which, by the way, could affect the uh, impact, the actual effects that you get from the plant, you look at the trichomes and you say, How met, what percentage, based on my naked eye, are milky white compared to amber and so on and so forth. So you can harvest them when they're glassy for a more uplifting, racy type of a high that might kick in a little quicker. Milky is supposedly uh, the most THC, so it's more psychoactive and more cerebral, and amber is supposedly more on the calming, relaxing, sedative side. So that's a little fun fact, but yeah, eat with your eyes first. One last thing about trichomes is that if anyone has ever seen keef or had keef in a grinder, um, keef is trichomes that have fallen off of your flower when you're grinding it. So most grinders will have different chambers and the very, very bottom chamber will be where you collect this like dusty looking powder that's really, really concentrated and that's called keef. And keef is just the trichomes. So that's why keef is considered a concentrate because there are more cannabinoids in keef than in flour. Um, but yeah, the trichomes are the good stuff. <laughs> and it's also, um, when you're making hash, you're actually, yeah, you're, you're removing those trichomes to, again, make that concentrate because they're producing the most of these molecules, the cannabinoids, the terpenes. It has, it's very abundant in those. So when we shake off all of those trichomes, we can press them into something that's now considered a concentrate. Took the words right out of my mouth. I was getting all excited to talk about hash and things like that. And yeah, I mean, basically, you're just using a series of very fine mesh bags to get those really, really small trichomes. And it sounds like we're talking about an episode of trichomes and not not flower. But the trichomes are the the really, really one of the most important parts of the flower, obviously, for the reasons that we've just mentioned. They're carrying all the good stuff. And they're important for us because, again, they have all of those molecules. They're the most abundant of those molecules we care about. But it's also extremely important for protecting that plant. Again, cannabis is not the only plant that has trichomes. Many, many different plants have trichomes. Um, and there, there's many ways the plant uses those trichomes to protect itself. From a chemical viewpoint, it's producing these compounds that might act as uh, protectant from the sun or... They're also very sticky, so you might be able to um, trap insects that might want to eat that plant or even protect against frost because that frost is going to build up on the trichomes instead of on the actual plant, which it would 
cause death eventually. So there's many uses for the trichomes. Right, and it's one of the reasons why the cannabinoids and terpenes that are in the trichomes protect the plant is that they're antibacterial or antimicrobial. So the plant is protecting itself as well. I just wanted to clarify here that antibacterial means kills bacteria or prevents bacteria from growing, and antimicrobial means killing or preventing microbes from growing. Now, a bacteria is a type of microbe or microorganism. So technically, antimicrobial encapsulates antibacterial. And it's funny that we were mentioning hash um, because besides flour, hash, I was going to talk about this with flour, but hash also fits under this category. These are some of the um, the oldest methods of using the cannabis plant have to do with something that harnesses the entirety of the flour. So like hash and flour, and I mean, originally the oldest preparation that's been used, medical preparation that's been used, the plant's called mafesan, and it was rice wine um, boiled through cannabis flour and just, you know, continuously boiled and boiled and boiled down and boiled down. It was an extraction. Um, and one of the reasons why, um, at least I'm so interested in these older methods of using cannabis and the harvesting of this this total amount of things in the plant has to do with something that we talk about a lot. And Riley, you just touched on it a little bit, but it's chemodiversity. And I think that's one of the reasons why so many people prefer flour and it's one of the reasons why so many people get very unique effects is from this combination, this chemodiversity that you are getting, that it's not possible to replicate with isolated products. And I think it's also important to note that you're getting a you're getting that diversity of compounds of chemicals. So chemodiversity, you have the flavonoids, you have the cannabinoids, you have the terpenes, but it's also being produced in what I like to call the natural ratio of compounds. So if we try to do this in the laboratory, maybe we try to add extra of some terpene or another molecule that's really hot right now just because the market wants that but the plant is going to synthesize these molecules in a ratio that makes the most sense for that plant and for what energy that plant has to give and I think there's a medicinal benefit in just that it's producing things in a very specific ratio that we as chemists are never going to be able to properly um, reproduce and I think that's something that's very special and builds that kind of connection with your medicine. Nailed it. The imperfection is the is the beauty, in my opinion. We talked about this on the last episode a little bit too, but it's you don't get a lot of consistency with plants. I mean, you have some, of course, but with the secondary metabolite production and all that kind of stuff, I mean, it's it's very hard to control. We're not like playing God here or anything like that, right? I mean, you can certainly reformulate things, but you're never really going to get the same thing that you would have gotten from the plant just growing in its natural habitat. Which, by the way, before I move on from trichomes, I want to mention as well, we just say it five times, trichomes, trichomes, trichomes. No, but um, when you are handling fresh, especially fresh flower or uh, a live plant, uh, I think it was Riley just a minute ago mentioned that, you know, it can be very sticky and resinous. That stuff can actually irritate your skin a little bit. Um, so if you're playing in, playing in the plants, you might notice if you, you know, brush your arm past or some sensitive skin in your body, um, you know, you could get some redness or some, some irritation. That's not unusual. Um, it definitely can happen. Also, beware if you're handling flour a lot or trimming uh, before touching your, you know, your nose or your eyes. Kind of like working with hot peppers. That can really upset you sometimes. I've done, I'm sure anybody out there listening that's trimmed their own buds before has experienced touching their face or their eyes and being like, oh, my God, this is a horrible experience all of a sudden. <laughs> 
One thing also just about trimming and trichomes and just about quality of cannabis, because it's something else we talked about, um, is that the quality of flower is something that is very, um, th there's many different ways that you can look at the quality of flower. Um, and the, the trichomes, when they get dry, you can see them. Like when you look at the flower and the trichomes are dry, it no longer looks like this like living, alive thing. It looks like kind of like a piece of garbage, honestly. And, that, and that's <laughs> what like... um, dryer vaporizers are essentially doing is taking those trichomes and like flattening them and taking out all of those compounds. And you can Google just like microscope and image of trichome and vaporizer. I'm sure nobody's going to do that, but it looks really cool. It's like a little desiccated trichome. It's awesome. Well, correct me if I'm wrong too, but it was my basic understanding when I first started growing that uh, the production of cannabinoids in particularly is kind of like a pie. And when I looked at this, you know, even from my early test results from, from labs, they give you a pie chart. And they say, look, you have this percentage of THC and CBD and CBDA and so on and so forth. If the pie is sliced in a huge portion just for one thing, you may be missing out on other things, right? So we talk about chemodiversity. If you're going after one thing, sure, you can get a lot of that. And maybe there's benefits to that, especially for processors or things, right, that are going after specific compounds. But if you have a lot of one thing, you probably have less space for other things. So it's something to consider. You have a limited amount of energy that that plant has to dispense. So if you're pushing energy, diverting energy towards THC production, that means that energy is being kind of taken from a different molecular pathway that might be going to produce a completely different molecule that you might want in your flower. But instead, because the demand's so high for THC, we're kind of engineering plants to produce more and more and more THC and less of some of those other compounds. I think a good example of this is CBD because both CBD and THC, both CBDA and THCA that are created in the plant come from CBGA. So they both come from what is called a precursor molecule. They come from the same precursor. So exactly what Andy was saying and what you were saying, Riley, if you slice that pie so that it's all THCA, you're going to get no CBDA because all of the energy and all of the resources all of the precursor molecules are being used up to create that one. And I think that that's useful. It can definitely be useful. Um, on the flip side, when it comes to overall effects, I personally have found that the effects are far better and like a better experience when they're more balanced because the endocannabinoid system is so complicated that hitting it all with one thing is much more, in my opinion, the experience feels more pharmaceutical. Like um, I've taken, I think it's Marinol. Um, I've taken isolate before, THC isolate, and I will never do it again, ever, because it was a very <laughs> negative experience. Um, and even with edibles that are created with distillate, um, yeah, I just, maybe I just can't hang, but... Well, that's that's the thing. Not that you can't hang, but um, you know, both <laughs> both of us are similar. That that's not appealing to us. That that high of only THC. It's very overwhelming. Like I would call a strain that's forty six percent THC anxiety attack. Like for me, but that's, that's a good brand that's right not, there. <laughs> but that's not saying that somebody out there really enjoys that much THC for their pain or whatever they're using it for. So if that works for you. That's awesome. You should still use it. We're not saying it's bad for you, but we and many people we know don't react well to high THC uh, products. Let's let's talk about this for a second. Flour. One of the biggest differences between flour and your other options out there, um, 
you know, when it comes to like actually purchasing something is that for flour in the past and in the black market days, gray market days, whatever you want to call them, the you bought weed by having a bunch of different options in bags and you stuck your face in the bag and gave it a nice deep breath and said, which one do I want? You looked at it and you said, all right, I like this purple looking one, but I like the smell of the green one better. Which one do I want? Ah, you know, most of the time you're going to follow your nose. You don't really get that option when you're searching for flour these days, unfortunately. Some markets allow it. Most don't. They'll put it in like a little jar that you can't open, but you can still smell. I think that's awesome. I think, I think everyone should do that because it's kind of crazy to just look at the terpenes on a label. And if you don't know what they mean, you're like, oh, cool, linalool, oh, myrcene. Yeah, cool. What does that mean? Like, well, it means that it's going to smell like this or that. Yeah, but if I can't smell it myself, I, am I just going to believe you? Plus, did it dry out in this package for three to six months before I even got it in, you know, to my hand or, or whatever? But, you know, with the flower, it's like the smells that come off of these flowers are really, really incredible. And you just don't really see that replicated well in traditional extracts or, or other things. Not to put anything down, it's just kind of a fact, right? If you're a cultivator, you see all this hard work get literally stripped away to purify cannabinoids and list them on a label as opposed to you know, again, getting that full nose experience before you even buy something. Dude, how cool would it be if we could do a selective terpene extraction from the plant and then make scratch and sniff stickers to label in dispensaries so you could still smell them, but it's like a, a one-use scratch and sniff. Maybe we should take that sniff. off of this podcast. So I, <laughs> I was, I was <laughs> just going to say that. I was just going to be like, maybe we should... Uh... <laughs> and Those cut. Um, we might edit that out for real, though, because... <laughs> That's actually a really good idea. The other thing about flour that I think is worth talking about since it's our research topic in general is that most people smoke flour. Um, we touched on dryer vaporizers. That's probably the other way that um, the other main way that people would use flour. Um, and then there's people who do make their own extractions and do it yourself and whatnot. I mean, like uh, to make full spectrum products and extracts themselves. But let's just talk about the majority. Majority of people smoke flour, which means that you use high temperatures and you extract and transform the flour by applying high heat to that before you inhale it. And that was something that actually really, um, I don't know why it shocked me when we first started doing this research, but it shocked me because maybe because no one talks about it. Um, but it was very surprising. I think that's a huge part. Sorry, that that nobody talks about it. Um, but it's like whatever you're rolling up in that joint, whatever molecules are present in that joint, that does not equal the molecules that are entering your body. And that's that is such like an abstract concept to think about, but that heat is converting and changing and rearranging some of the compounds there. So when they enter your body, they're interacting with your body in a different way than something like a tincture from that same flower would produce. The feeling is different. The compounds are different. You know what? I want to point out something that we talk about all the time, right? We talk about transformation, not degradation. As I learned about all this stuff as a novice and just reading a lot and reading stuff online and forums and YouTube videos and books and whatever – all you ever read about and hear about is degradation at higher temperatures. So be careful when you're decarbing and be careful when you're doing this process or that process or even when you're distilling. But to your point and to our surprise, and it's really not that surprising, it's pretty reasonable, but when you're using temperatures of above 900 to 1,000 degrees Fahrenheit when you smoke, that's way higher than what they're telling you on these forums to do for decarbing and whatever. 
So we're using super high temperatures. We're transforming all of that stuff. And I think it's a perspective shift that we've had internally that other people may start to have as well as we get this message out. But it's not degradation. It's transformation. It's a perspective shift. Just like when you smoke weed and you change your perspective on certain problems in your life or things that you're talking about, all of a sudden you take a couple of hits and you say, oh, maybe I'm thinking about this differently now. Maybe I should apologize to that person for saying that thing. Maybe I should maybe I should read this differently. You know, whatever it is, same thing. It's not degradation. It's transformation. And it's beautiful. And even if it was degradation, that doesn't necessarily mean that harmful molecules are being produced through that degradation process. I mean, there are peer-reviewed studies published, even with CBD and some other compounds, that here are these degradation products. How can we test these on you know assays that we know are anti-cancer, anti-whatever? And there is biological activity of those degradation products. But because it's a breakdown product of something we think of as beneficial, we automatically think of it as not as beneficial or has no space in the in the medicinal aspect. But it definitely could. In many cases, it does. Right. Usually people are thinking of degradation as inactivation or like, you know, ruining or... Yeah, it... <laughs> It's it's saying a mean thing. Oh, it's degraded. Like it's bad. Like it's rancid. Um, But one of the things that we found that is something that we're really interested in continuing to research, but that's a lifetime worth of research to look into, is that at the temperatures, even at temperatures as low as dry air vaporizers, although there's far less of this going on at temperatures below, say, 300 degrees Fahrenheit, um, which someone asked me to also do Celsius, so it's like 165 Celsius or something like that. But um, at temperatures as low as around those temperatures, you still get transformation. And what you're not getting, and, and degradation, if we're going to call it degradation and transformation, it's not going all to products that are like, um, when people think about combustion, we use the word combustion, and we talk about high heat transformation of things. Total combustion or full combustion goes all the way to CO2 carbon dioxide. And I will admit that carbon dioxide is probably not that beneficial. Um, But most of the time we're getting something that's partial, either partial combustion or um, something called pyrolysis, which is when there's no oxygen present. No, it's carbon dioxide Um, and carbon and carbon monoxide. Oh, (laughs) right, right. No, so so this partial transformation or this partial degradation creates many compounds that are very, very similar in structure to the parents. They are very, very similar to CBD or THC. Uh, a perfect example of this is cannabinol or CBN. CBN is almost identical to THC. It is only missing two hydrogens in the top ring. That's the only difference between CBN and THC. And CBN is present in smoke. And it's one of the reasons why I think it softens the effect because it will compete with THC for that receptor. Okay, I have to jump in now too with my un, my untrained science background here, but I'm doing my best with analogies. The other day I was saying to Riley and Miyavi that when we look at isolated compounds versus mixtures, I look at it like you've got you know, all these ingredients for a cake. We've got sugar, we've got flour and so on and so forth and they're all in a pile and if I eat the sugar by itself it's still sugar but it's a different experience and if I mix them all together bake them in an oven at a high temperature and then eat the cake which is totally different but it's made of all those ingredients when we're talking about flour and we're talking about smoking specifically the way you smoke the temperature you smoke at the flour that you've chosen 
the ingredients, the cannabinoids, terpenes, and active things in the plant, they can all be like catalysts for different changes too. So smoking one thing that is, you know, literally one thing, like an isolate, for example, which we've done for research and personally. In fact, I was doing it for personal use before research. And personally. It's, it changes things quite a bit. And then when you introduce other ingredients to that mixture and burn them together, they can change each other differently as well. So that is, hopefully I, I don't know if I'm explaining that well to the two scientists here, but you know, it's, it's yes, like definitely. cooking. I mean, chemistry and stuff is like cooking in general, right? Like you got a bunch of ingredients, you do different things to them and you can make different products. Cooking is chemistry. That it definitely is a great way of explaining it. Like another, um, another thing is people who've ever made like sauces. If you've ever made a sauce, all those separate ingredients and then heating them over overheat, right? Like, I I think that that's one of the things that in terms of like shifting perspective, I'm going to go back and talk about this. And um, I want to address the fact that we know that there's a lot of negative research out there on smoke and we are aware and not trying to say that that doesn't exist. And we're not trying to say that that research that was done in the past, um, that there's negative effects of using high temperatures we're not saying that that research isn't real we're just saying that that research has existed thus far in a vacuum because there's no other opinions or no other research on what happens at these temperatures um i don't deny that like smoke particulates and like some of these compounds that are known to be present in smoke may have negative effects if they're used in isolation um, I don't know and I'm not convinced in my own sense that the that there's like a positive versus a negative or a pros or a cons versus this because in terms of smoking cannabis, you're getting a very unique effect as we've been talking about it at length here. Um, and the net benefit of that unique effect is very, very complicated. And to my knowledge, very few people have looked into how these unique molecules at the very, very unique um, ratios that they're created in by the plant and then heated at a temperature, um, what the benefits are from those different molecules that are produced and not necessarily degradation again, but a, a transformation. And that perspective shift has been something that um, is just an, it's just an interesting one to, to bring up and discuss is that we're not trying to say that there's no negative information out there. We're just trying to say that we're bringing a different perspective in here that is going to be in addition to that information. And there's got to be a reason why so many people prefer this method, right? So that's what brought us here. Of course, we know that there's some information out there that's not stuff that I like to hear about as someone who smokes cannabis. I've loved smoking for a long time. So to hear that there's anything in the smoke that may not be something I would choose to consume, that's not the best news. But I haven't hurt my lungs. I haven't seen a lot of other people. This isn't medical advice by any means, anyone, by the way. But We put a disclaimer in there. Yeah, you know, I'm not saying that you should or shouldn't smoke. In fact, we should be clear on that. We're not saying don't smoke. We're also not saying go and smoke. We're just saying smoke is really cool and interesting, <laughs> and a lot of people like it, and we want to know more about that. And to Miyabi's point, the perspective has been really negative on other research. It's about what's bad about smoke. We want to know what's so good about it. I agree with everything you guys are saying. And um, yeah, for listeners, we live by the you do you mentality. Like we're not telling you to do anything, do whatever works for you, your lifestyle, your family, whatever. Um, but we do prefer smoking because we think the feeling's different. But to Miyabi's point about previous research on smoking, 
lot of it is um, kind of displayed in this very negative light. And definitely look at the funding sources for those publications, because a lot of times it's from like the National Institute on Drug Abuse and things like that, which if you were to write up a grant proposal to the National Institute on Drug Abuse and say, I want to investigate all the benefits of smoking, I can almost guarantee you that grant won't get funded uh, because that's not really their MO. So um, we are patients first, our company, that's kind of what we live by. And we know that smoking flour is the number one consumption method of cannabis. So looking into that further and trying to understand that further, what's happening? Why do people prefer that? That's part of what our company is about and why we want to further this research. Yeah. Mentioning the funding sources is an interesting one because um most not most all of my funding through my phd um, came from the national institute of drugs of abuse and so i was studying the endocannabinoid system so that i could help develop new synthetic cannabinoids uh, specifically for like opioid substance use disorders and for addiction and studying that molecular mechanism and I'm not saying anything negative. I'm also, if anyone from NIDA is listening, I'm super grateful for my education and all of my funding um, and all of the information that like we were able to get and disseminate about that. But um, all of that information was was going towards making new synthetic cannabinoid pharmaceuticals. And I actually had like a crisis at some point during my PhD when I realized like there are hundreds and hundreds, and now in our research, if not hundreds and thousands more molecules that are similar, that are not synthetic, um, that are being created, and that actually humans right now, I bet you right now as we're talking, they're actually, you know what, they're in my body right now as we're speaking. <laughs> like, we are using these molecules. Anyone who's smoking flour has experienced them, and they're, they're different from different flowers, different growths. There are some strains that are spectacular andy has done a grow of big bud specifically that i have not had an effect like that since i left california and that also could be about like quality and dry cure and a lot of other variables um the genetics are loosely related to california big bud um okay yeah so the genetics that andy was using was related to a california strain so it's possibly the genetics um it's I'm just saying that there's there are very unique effects that come from very unique strains and as Andy mentioned too, ways of smoking and that these it's possible and very likely and what we're researching is that this could be linked to the actual formulation of things that you're taking into your body. Speaking of our research, it's time to relax and take a quick break and read a review before we jump right back into the science. Yeah, let's take a deep breath. If you notice that your jaws clench, just try to stay relaxed for the rest of the podcast. So now we're going to read a review. This review comes all the way from Iceland. Unar Kolka says, this is the best cannabis podcast you can find. Check out Smoke and All also or Dr. Miyabi or Dr. Riley on TikTok. They put in so much educational content and bring together an amazing community of canna lovers. Wow. Thank you so much. Yes, thank you so much. We seriously appreciate all of you who have taken the time to write and leave us a review or share the podcast with friends and family. We read every one and it really helps us grow our audience so more people can listen and learn. Now we'll hear a quick word from our company, Smoke and All, who sponsors this podcast, and then it's back to the science. Most people prefer the effects of smoking over edibles. The most important reason why is heat transformation of cannabinoids, the active ingredients in cannabis. Unlike conventional edibles, edibles made with smoke and all contain heat-transformed cannabinoids from smoke. Edibles made with smoke and all feel more like smoking. 
If you are a product manufacturer, contact us today. Smoke and all, we smoked it for you. And now for the first time ever, if you're a patient or consumer that wants to try hemp smoke and all, which is a high CBD extract that's also enriched in rare cannabinoids not present in other extracts, you can purchase it at profoundnaturals.com. That's all one word, profoundnaturals.com, and we'll put a link in the description. Now let's get back to our sesh. So what is pharmacology? I couldn't answer this question a few years ago, which is kind of funny because it affects all of us every day, whether you're getting some from a doctor, going to CVS and picking up something, or grabbing some Tylenol at the gas station. Pharmacology is important, and it's something that we should all probably look into a little bit. I would say, in my kind of average Joe mindset, what is pharmacology? It's like the study of how drugs and chemicals will interact with your body and your brain and what that's going to do to you. And why don't I leave it to the professionals now to talk about what it really is? Yeah. So, I mean, that is honestly spot on. Um, Pharmacology is just studying how drugs act on our biological systems and how our body responds to these drugs. Uh, We often study the mechanism in which drugs act on the body. So what are they binding to? What is this causing? What are the possible therapeutic benefits of this drug on that system? Um, And just to be very, very uh, specific here, we are not pharmacists. Um, We do not dispense any medication to patients. We don't act with patients. We don't give medical advice. Uh, We are on the research side of drugs, uh, discovering new drugs and discovering how drugs are acting on those systems, discovering if they have any toxicity, what doses. Um, That's more of the side we're working on, the research and development, not dispensing medications. So really quickly, I wanted to talk about a history of pharmacology because I think a lot of people, when we see like where research is at now and what, and when we think of research in general, um, I want to think about it in the context of the total time that humans have ever taken drugs that we know of um, in the knowledge of our, of our history. So the, the history of pharmacology or when humans started using natural products, we don't have many written records before, I believe, ancient Egypt, but that doesn't mean that it wasn't happening. Um, my personal belief is that humans have been using natural products and medicines for, since the beginning of us discovering them. Um, but there's no proof unless that we had a written system or writing. So the first um, proof of that was in ancient Egypt. I think it's called the Ebers Papyrus. Um, the first medical documented use of cannabis was in ancient China. And it's in Mafei San, which was what I mentioned earlier. It's rice wine boiled through cannabis. And that was a long time ago. It was in the it was 2000 years ago. I, I'm not entirely 100 percent sure if- I was close. It's a little bit under 2,000 years ago. Mafeisan, which literally translates into cannabis boil powder, was first created by an early Han dynasty surgeon named Hua Tuo. He was alive from 140 to 208. This was considered the first ever surgical anesthetic in the world. Exactly what Mafeisan was back then is still up for debate, but some believe it's pretty similar to hash. Um, so if I were to put... Um, If we were to be on a timeline, if you were standing on the end of a football field and at the other end of the football field, at the other end of the entire end zone, that whole football field, if that was when the first documented use of medical cannabis was, the entire field of what Riley and I researched, which is drug discovery and what Riley mentioned, molecular mechanism, our entire field of research started... um, 
less than 10 yards from where we're standing. And the way that we went about studying pharmacology has changed a lot over the years, although the majority of new drugs, new drug entities are still discovered from nature to this day or from a natural uh, backbone, which we'll describe a little more when we get into um, our previous history and research. Um, which I think is really interesting because nature often makes uh, the most uh, efficacious and maybe not the most safe drugs, but we can always change that later. And the pharmaceutical industry used to um, study natural product libraries for new drugs, uh, but for various reasons, like you can't patent it and many other reasons, the pharmaceutical industry has kind of stepped away from natural product research. And a lot of what they do now is machines just kind of combining things almost randomly and then screening against drug targets to see if they're effective. But that has not been as effective for discovering new drugs as traditional natural product workflows, which I think is pretty awesome. The majority of new pharmaceutical drugs are still obtained from nature, but the path to a drug usually consists of first screening a bunch of compounds from nature against a desired target, say it's anti-cancer. Then eventually you get a hit, meaning one of those compounds is active, or a few, and it may not be the whole molecule, it may just be a portion of that molecule that's the active part. So then chemists come in and they will design a bunch of derivatives by modifying that compound in different ways. Then they see which one of these derivatives is the most active, and then they test against a bunch of safety parameters until they reach the perfect balance of efficacious and safe. Then they're off to animal studies and eventually human trials a billion dollars later. I have another point to make from my perspective over here. Uh, first, I wanna say that's a very like descriptive response to like, what this is because again i'm learning from the two of you every day so i this worked for me i don't know who else out there agrees i think this is a pretty good description of like what pharmacology is and why it matters but i see a lot of this uh on the internet right plants over prescriptions and things like that and to me it could be a little confusing because in general not all plants are safe to consume or smoke or eat so I, maybe that's just something that my thought process will clear, you know, clear up for somebody out there. Maybe there's a lot of super educated people listening, and and this sounds crazy. But when I hear this, I think, oh, so plants must be, in general, safer than other drugs or pharmaceuticals. But that may not be totally true all the time. So beware. Uh, do not just go eating anything you want out of the forest because there could be some unwanted side effects. <laughs> Yeah, definitely not all plants. Like this is something that I thought was an interesting one. Most common garden plants, not most, I, don't, I actually don't know if it's true if it's most, but many, I'll say many, many common um, ornamental or just visually pleasing garden plants are very poisonous. If you were to take those leaves or those flowers and like make an extraction out of them, and again, this is not, I'm not telling anyone to do this, don't do this. I'm just telling you that if you were to do this, it would be really dangerous. It would be as dangerous as some of the cleaning po uh, products under the sink, which are also very dangerous. And so that's also important for 
um, determining like dose too, like effective dose, even though I always think of like digitalis, it's a beautiful flower as Miyabi was just saying, and you can grow it in your garden. Um, and it does produce a compound called digoxin that is um, very therapeutically relevant and has saved many lives, but it can also kill you in high doses. So the dose determines the poison often and we need to just be aware that just because something's used in a clinic for medicinal purposes doesn't mean you can just toss that in a tea and chug it and it's going to cause the same effect in your body it could easily kill you at the wrong dose you need to be careful with natural products side note i am just rereading uh into the wild and relevant i mean he literally by accidentally killed himself for eating the wrong berries that looked similar to the berries that he wanted to eat, right? Christopher McCandless, Alexander Supertramp, whatever his name was. But um, also relevant to anybody uh, this time of year, spring cleanups are coming out. Um, it's probably not a big deal, depending on where you are regionally, but and maybe it's more relevant in the fall, actually. But when you're burning your leaves, always be careful to not burn poison ivy or poison oak because that stuff will end up in the smoke and that could really hurt you or your neighbors. So be aware of that as well. I'm going to second that if you have pepper trees or anything that grows any sort of pepper, anything that grows anything spicy, if you were to burn it, it's highly likely that that compound is also going to be in the smoke and in the air. But going back to cannabis and about safety of plants versus spells and the history of pharmacology, the history of cannabis is so long and very, very extensive. And cannabis has been used in greater excess than probably any of us would individually surpass, although I'm sure we've tried. It's it's much longer than, um, you know, what we are recently discovering. And there's, there's so much research that's come out. If you were to go on to PubMed, um, right now, which, by the way, for people who are looking into reading their own research and starting to, you know, dive into doing it on their own, PubMed.gov is a repository for almost every, uh, it's like a Google Scholar, Scholar, Google Scholar works too. If you were to research cannabis, though, and it shows you the number of research articles over time, the amount of research that has come out in the last 10 years is exponential compared to what has been there before. And so we're just finding out so much. And that's why it seems contradictory when we as scientists are saying things like, oh, a recent study came out and said this and a recent study came out and said that. And then people are like kind of getting whiplash being like, oh, didn't you say something different last month? And it's like, well, yes, because there's new research that comes out and then it, you know, that changes changes your opinion of, of what's happening. And um, I just want to keep it in perspective that within one calendar year of what we're talking about right now, there's been a paper that was published that released a new molecular mechanism for Prozac or fluxetine is the drug name of that. Prozac is an SSRI or a selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor. Even though it turns out it's not so selective, we are still calling it that when we sell it and prescribe it. And most people, you know, probably are not aware that there that the mechanism for Prozac is up for debate but not just that it's up for debate it's that it's complicated there are many different ways that Prozac acts it definitely is a serotonin reuptake inhibitor it also definitely increases the levels of endocannabinoids over time this is like a one of its longer term effects and it also now appears to definitely be related to a different receptor class entirely called trkb2 so you know that's just how science is and that's what our field is and our field pharmacology the study of how drugs work in the body that was a perfect way of describing it you know it's constantly evolving because we don't know a lot 
about how drugs interact in, in the body. It's, it's so complicated. I know I've, I've mentioned this to you guys before, but I remember during my doctoral defense, um, at the end, your committee can question you on whatever they want. And I remember someone from my committee asked me a question. I drew out the answer on the board. I explained it. And they looked at me and said, are you sure about that answer? And I said, absolutely not. Um, <laughs> things are changing all the time. And all of their jaws were on the floor and I'm like yeah like I'm okay with being wrong if someone proves me wrong in the future that's okay that's science and that's I just have a good core memory oh, of that's, that that's the best I was going to interrupt and say uh shout out to always sunny in Philadelphia for the uh I don't even know if it's appropriate to put it into the world but you know science can be wrong sometimes we'll say that but right think about we used to think that the earth was the center of the universe and that everything was orbiting around us and we used to think that maybe it was flat some people still do think that uh, we won't talk about those people um, no there's there's a lot of information that changes when you find new information it blows everybody's minds and we think oh my god how did I think differently once upon a time and that's something that I think anybody can understand stuff changes and when it changes dramatically your perspective is kind of like thrown for a loop so I want to bring up something that's going to be we're we're going to it's, I'm going to say that it's a little contentious, is that science has this thing called dogma. Um, the, central, the central dogma of science, that dogma is what everyone is believing right now at this exact moment. So like there's like a collective hive mind of like a majority, let's just call it a majority of scientists that are believing a certain thing about a very specific field at a time, and that's called dogma. So what you were just describing, Andy, at one point, I think Copernicus was the person who decide, who discovered the sun was the center versus I can't remember who the other person was. Yeah, or, yeah, so, yeah. Somebody. Um, no, I didn't pay attention. At the that. time when this came about, when, when it was first proposed that the Earth was not the center of the universe and that the Earth actually orbited around the sun, that was blasphemous at the time. It was not accepted well. Um, and the reason for that was because the dogma um, or the, the culture was so strong because everyone else was believing this other thing. And I mean, this is, you know, we touched a little bit on this whole thing. Science is wrong often. And that's kind of the beauty of it is that you can go back and say like, well, we were wrong. We were close though. And the reason why we were wrong is because like X, Y, and Z. <laughs> this I have to add as well it's important that everybody recognizes this especially in the cannabis industry because we don't all have it figured out yet and once we can all agree that we don't know everything our conversations and pushing research forward and all this stuff probably get a lot easier when people agree not to disagree but agree that we don't know everything and that there's a lot more to be learned and that to Riley's point anything is possible Anything is possible. We can't even fathom what's possible. We can't, we can't think of it. And honestly, every time you publish a peer-reviewed uh, research article or something like that, you're usually not trying to like solve a huge problem. You're just trying to add a little piece of the puzzle so someone else can say, oh, that makes sense to the research I'm doing. I'm going to use what this researcher found, add that to my research, expand our knowledge a little more, another piece of the puzzle. And that kind of builds up over time until you hit a blockbuster paper that really tries to describe a more complex system. Right, like you build up to the paradigm shift where you can change the dogma. The problem is that this dogma, this belief of all the science that everyone is believing at the same time, it's built up over time. So one of the reasons I wanted to talk about this dogma is because 
the endocannabinoid system gets the short end of the stick all the time when we talk about neuroscience and when we talk about the body in general people don't think about the endocannabinoid system or we don't put the endocannabinoid system on the same level as say serotonin or dopamine or like the opioid system or GABA. And the reason for that was because it was discovered later. Even though the molecules of the plant were discovered in like the 60s to like, you know, started being discovered in the 60s, the receptors, which are the things in our bodies and in our brains, the receptors are, they're proteins, but they're like little light switches and we all have them in our brain, on our skin, inside our bodies. The CB1 receptor is freaking everywhere. All of these receptors for the cannabinoids, the endocannabinoid system, they weren't properly cloned to be studied until the 90s, which means that they had a later start entering into the dogma. And it's one of the reasons why cannabis and endocannabinoid system pharmacology or the study of these drugs inside the body um, is so um, in its infancy really and yeah we we all should agree that we don't know hey shout out to cbn first isolated in the 1800s though well before people were talking about the rest of this stuff and now look it's the newest hottest thing on the market but it happens to be the first cannabinoid ever isolated and studied i guess right so right and a lot of that is because it was a breakdown product of thc so you know maybe they're trying to isolate thc but Back in those days, they didn't have the analytical techniques that we did. So we could isolate THC in a day, but for them, it might have taken, you know, months, a year, whatever. And by that time, the THC is already broken down into CBN. So when they isolated and they said, oh, we have a new molecule, uh, it happened to be the breakdown product, but still a very important molecule. Many breakdown products are actually more stable than their parents as well. That's one of the reasons why they get broken down at high temperatures. They become something that's more stable. And a great example of that is Delta-8 THC is more stable than Delta-9 THC, even though Delta-9 THC is produced in higher abundance in the plant. Think about it like this, too. What if I throw a piece of raw meat on the floor and leave it there for a really long time? It's going to look really gross and messed up after a while. If I throw a piece of burned meat on the floor it's probably going to look pretty similar like burned meat on the floor <laughs> this is a weird analogy but you know how it's changed with the high temperatures and it seems to not change that much more after it's been burned to a crisp all right should we dive back into pharmacology i know so miyabi just mentioned receptors you want to just start on that note and start describing receptors further you describe them as a light switch which i think is a great analogy to conceptualize them and when you're trying to think in your body of receptors think everywhere think on every cell in your body you have receptors and it's going to change based on that cell type and location in your body but those receptors are so 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 important because it's the way your body talks to itself. Receptors are what your body is using if something needs to be turned on, turned off, uh, slowed down. Your body is going to send a certain molecule to a receptor to send that signal saying, hey, can you stop making so much of this? It's causing a problem. And then that molecule binds to that receptor, causes that change, and then you make less of that molecule. So, or there's many, many, many different uh, examples of this, but they're really just these little, you, I like to think of them almost like a cell phone tower or something. They receive signals. They're always taking in signals. Um, and I'm sure you guys have more analogies to describe receptors. No, that's a great way. That's a great way to describe it, that they're the receivers, they're the receiving end, and that they can be 
in every different cell and every different system and they often talk with one another across different systems so if you've heard of the cb1 receptors cb2 receptors those are the two main receptors in the endocannabinoid system there are also a bunch of other receptors that are loosely tied to the endocannabinoid system like the trp receptors stands for transient receptor potentials um, there's also the GPR55 and 128 receptors. These are like newer discoveries. These are all part of one family of the endocannabinoid system receptors. There are serotonin receptors, the 5-HT receptor. There are many different types of that. So we group these receptors kind of into the families of molecules that they interact with. And so the endocannabinoid system has endocannabinoid receptors because it is endogenous, which means that it is from within the body and it reacts to cannabinoids. And I think one of the fun things, um, most people have heard of endorphins. You've heard of like releasing endorphins when you're happy or when you go for a run or um, endorphins like are associated with good things. Endorphin actually stands for endogenous morphine because the endorphins activate the opioid receptors. So endorphin is an endogenous molecule within our body that acts like morphine to activate or turn on the opioid receptors. Similarly, the endocannabinoids are molecules that we create inside our body to activate the cannabinoid receptors. So you think about cannabis, when you're using any cannabis product, um, you're taking in molecules that are going to turn on these cannabinoid receptors all within you know, this one family or signaling system. And when you turn on those receptors, it has a bunch of different downstream uh, processes, which I think we'll probably break down one or two here. Um, but many of them are linked to, um, from THC to the CB1 receptor as like the main psychoactive receptor. So I also, I want to touch on again, what you mentioned about endorphins and stuff. This was actually one of my first TikTok videos ever was on this subject. But anyway, um, the kind of progression of events here makes a lot of sense of why things are named the way they are. So we've been using cannabis for thousands of years. We know that it's causing some change in our body that we really like, right? We say, okay, using this plant makes us feel different. Then fast forward, we discover the receptors. So we say, okay, so that molecule from the cannabis plant that made us feel good was because a molecule is binding to a receptor. So we called those cannabinoid receptors because we know from the plant that something in the cannabis plant activates that. And then, and then researchers say, okay, if our body has this many cannabinoid receptors in our body, it must be producing some molecules by itself. Our body must be producing molecules that can bind to those receptors because your body is not going to waste that much energy producing that many receptors if we had nothing to actually activate them. We wouldn't rely on finding a cannabis plant in order to activate that system. So then we discovered the endogenous cannabinoid molecules or your endocannabinoids. And the same thing happened with the endogenous morphines. We discovered, hey, smoking this or taking this makes us feel different. Discover receptor. Discover that our body makes these molecules too, which makes sense why we have so many of these systems in our body. I need to make a request to the universe. We need to have some sort of movie that's like a mixture of Osmosis Jones and Magic School Bus for explaining all of this. Because I think even a even a you know ninth grader in, in high school that hasn't even touched these subjects 
in science or biology or whatever classes they're taking. This, you know, the way you're describing it makes a lot of sense to me. I just want to visualize it like Osmosis Jones. Great movie, by the way. Yeah, and so we mentioned that our body makes these cannabinoid molecules inside our body, inside our body. Those are what we call the endocannabinoids. So you'll hear us talk about AEA and 2AG, which are the main ones for our endocannabinoids. And then when we say phytocannabinoid, we're talking about the plant molecules, phyto meaning plant. So they're both cannabinoid molecules that activate cannabinoid receptors, but one's called endo because our body makes it, and then phyto because the plant makes it. Okay, I have a question. Have I heard people discussing endocannabinoids being made not in the body and or um, like anandamide being in chocolate and things like that? Is anandamide an endocannabinoid? Can you explain that? Yeah, so many plants and other and other creatures also besides us create endocannabinoids and yeah um anandamide is something called an n-acyl ethanol amide that's like the class of molecule and there are plenty of them in chocolate and it's actually linked to one of the reasons why they think chocolate makes you happy also why it um could be an aphrodisiac endocannabinoids or um molecules that are similar to endocannabinoids that are present in like a lot of the foods that people associate with aphrodisia which is funny because of well, our preliminary results, but, <laughs> but okay, let me just clarify here. We've done some initial survey work uh, when we were first trying to look at, you know, unique properties of smoke and all. And one of the really, really um, unexpected, but not negative results uh, that we had people come back to us with in these surveys was in fact, aphrodisia. Um, really quickly, I wanted to do the magic school bus osmosis Jones. I want to take a, sh- I'm going to take a shot at it. So yeah. Okay, so as Riley mentioned, the phytocannabinoids are the molecules that are inside the plant. So imagine that you're hitting a joint and the molecules in the plant are getting heated and transformed and they get inhaled and you inhale them through your mouth. They go into your lungs. Those cannabinoid molecules, phytocannabinoids from the plant, get absorbed into the lungs. They go into your blood. They go up to your brain. When those molecules are in your brain, they're dock. Imagine them docking if you... um, like a shipping container or a ship? Yeah, like a ship can into I, a port. Oh. Can I interrupt to ask? How many of them make it? So when you're smoking a huge amount, um, this is called bioavailability, and it has to do with like the number of molecules that, that get passed through um, what's called a blood-brain barrier and also like absorption. Some people for edibles, apparently 20% of people, it doesn't make it at all. Just a very important point. The difference between phyto and endo isn't just that our body makes one and a plant makes the other. When we're smoking weed or taking edibles or whatever, and we're introducing something like THC into our body, that's activating a bunch of CB1, CB2 receptors all over our body, which is not the same way that the endocannabinoids work in our body. Endocannabinoids are synthesized where they're needed and when they're needed. So if something's dysregulated, your body's going to immediately synthesize them, release them, and they're going to work. Where That's super localized to a specific area. Whereas phytocannabinoids, when you're smoking, that's not localized. That's what we call like global activation. It's activating them all over your body. And that is a huge difference between the two. Right. So let's. I'm going to continue on with my boat analogy of like, of, I'll, I'll call it a wave. So you have, you have the molecules, you smoked them, they're in your lungs, going to your blood. And now the blood is going to not just to your brain, but all over your body. But these molecules are like thousands and thousands of like little 
boats um, and they're docking only in specific docks. Like let's say there's a dock over there and it has a green light so you can go dock in that one. That's the CB1 receptor. So these molecules or these little boats, the phytocannabinoids are specifically going to the CB1 receptor and they're docking. Now there's another boat no, there's a whale. There's, there's a whale in the ocean as well that also can go hang out on the green light docks. And that would be what would be the endocannabinoids. They are things that are already in the ocean besides the boats that we took in. Um, and that would be a really cool. I, I do think it'd be cool to do some sort of like animated example of, you know, not just cannabis, but most pharmacology, um, you know, relevant I've, Riley and I have said this in the last time we talked, both of us think that we should be educating about drugs and pharmacology from a really young age because the younger you introduce the concepts of drugs, the safer people will be around their drug use. I mean, like, we've all done stupid things. I have to add in, another word that sounds scary is drugs. If you look up the definition of drugs on Google, because that's just what I do with everything that we talk about here, when I don't understand something you're saying, I just go straight to Google. I'm like, hey, what is this word? Drugs are basically just things that you take into your body for a specific purpose. So the Food and Drug Administration, right? It's like food can be drugs, right? Water can be drugs, I guess, right? I mean, if you're taking it into your body for a reason, my way off base here, it just sounds scary to say drugs all the time. It's like, ah, drugs. No, you're don't not. Yeah. <laughs> no, you're not way off base at all. It's something that we were mentioning poison, the word poison earlier too. Um, it all has to do with dose, which is another thing Riley like, talked about. So I think let's actually, let's talk about that because dose is important for pharmacology. One of the things that we study when we study these drugs interacting in our body is how much of a drug do you need to get a very, very specific effect? And that is called the dose. Normally the dose is correlated with body weight, um, typically in pharmaceuticals, um, or surface area of your body. And when we think about like what is a drug, a drug is a molecule that comes from outside of your body that interacts with your body for a specific effect. And the difference between a drug, a medicine, a poison, and a nutrient is very, very gray. There's there's a very big gray area there between like like I think a good uh, question even for like trace minerals like like manganese. Or, or things that our body does technically need, but in really, really small amounts. You know, what what is and isn't necessary for the human body? I don't think we can say that yet. Like, I don't think we know. No, and specifically dose with complex systems like the endocannabinoid system, that can be extremely variable, especially if you're thinking if somebody already uses cannabis, that's going to change the the density of the receptors in their brain. So maybe they have less spaces for that signal to actually interact with. Uh, it can get extremely complicated, but oftentimes you'll see maybe something at a low dose is very safe. There's there's almost no toxicity. It's very effective. But as that dose increases, the toxicity, the adverse effects are going to increase uh, because it can cause a lot of uh, it can like wreak havoc in your body uh, if, it, if the dose gets too large and it can shut down whole systems. So what, if I continue with the analogy of like the boats and the dose would be like the number of boats or the number of molecules and at a certain point when you get to a really high dose your boats are docking all over the place they're not just going to the cb1 receptor they're crashing into each other yeah other yeah they're smashing into each other they're you know it's a cluster of like a drunken sailor 
And that's what causes a lot of these adverse effects. And that's one of the things that's one of Riley's videos that I saw that I really loved was one of the reasons why cannabis is so safe is because when you get to a really, really high dose of cannabis, you don't activate certain systems that are like essential for your health. So like one of the reasons why people accidentally overdose and why it can be fatal, it usually has to do with not breathing. Like the drug will make your body stop breathing or give you a heart attack it, it stops like one of your central functions right so that has to do with like where the receptors are actually located physically in your brain so specifically talking about the brain stem here which controls things like your heart and your breathing and things that are necessary to keep you alive there are not many at all cb1 receptors in that region of your brain which thc binds to so even if you took way too much THC, you're having an anxiety attack, ex extremely uncomfortable, uh, you probably won't be able, well, I know you won't be able to actually um, cause, you know, death from that because those receptors are not in that region of your brain that controls the breathing and the heart rate. So you're not going to be able to shut, shut down those essential functions, even though you might feel uncomfortable it's not going to cause death so before we go um we don't have a we don't have a guest this is all team smoke and all here but i think we should all do the fun share where we all share one thing anything it's like our soapbox anything that we want to share that we're passionate about i actually don't have anything i can think of right this moment <laughs> share share <laughs> i have nothing to share uh no what when you were just saying that i'm like constantly thinking about analogies and stuff because it's just the way i learn but when you're talking about the brain stem being like the most important thing to whether or not a drug of any kind could like kill you, I think a lot about, I just talked about this last weekend actually, but when I learned how to grow, I made a lot of analogies between plants and humans and how we interact and all this stuff. And, you know, the stem of a plant when you're growing flower that we are talking about is pretty important. And if you snap and break the stem, there's no chance of nutrients or anything getting to those buds unless you're purposely doing it, doing monster cropping, which we're not talking about that right now. But basically, if, you, if your stems are destroyed, no such luck for the, uh, for the production of high-quality flowers. And there's probably somebody out there that will totally be upset that I said this because that is like literally a form of stress training on your plants is to snap stems and then repair them so that there's kind of like a nutrient highway. But remains true. You snap the stem, you might be in trouble. So keep your brain stems intact do that definitely do that <laughs> all right do you have something so i'm gonna share i'll share something from my in my personal life that i'm really excited about is that i'm about to move closer to our lab which i'm really excited about um and one of the analogies going to analogy is about you know fixing a place painting a wall like making someplace um your own and kind of like doing work on something that is similar to how I feel about drugs and cannabis as a tool in the brain. Um, I feel like cannabis can be really, really helpful, especially when it's combined with the right mindset about why you're using it and an intentional, um, an intentional sort of conscious effort to change the way that your brain patterns work. Um, I'll be the first to share that I had a lot of negative brain patterns and a lot of negative um, negative highways. And when we first started this company, Andy and I would always say, happy highways. We're going to cultivate the happy highways. We are 
thinking positively in conjunction, um, you know, with using drugs as, as tools to help you to do this. And I think it's something that's like very similar to, to the plants and environment is that the environment that your brain is in, whether that's drugs or like your actual environment, like going for a walk and being outside and taking in fresh air, um, your environment's really, really important and you can actively cultivate it. And so I would just like to share that I think I think it's really beneficial for everyone to think about that, especially people who are chronic cannabis users, because we should, you know, be aware of why we're using cannabis, how often we use it and um, what the benefits are. That was beautiful. Beautifully said. Uh, a quick thing that I can share or say is that, um, number one, I, we started this business right as I found out that I was having my first child. And that was a huge catalyst for like working hard, putting the head down and really making something happen. Now I'm having my second child as we approach year number three of, of our business and transitioning into some new things that we're going to share with you soon. But I just want to say something that Yabby and I and Riley and I talk about a lot is supporting everyone. There's a lot of really awesome, cool stuff out there. People are doing really interesting things right now with innovation and research and development of new technologies and cannabis and beyond. And there's you know, probably plenty of things that you hear that aren't necessarily positive about this industry. People have their complaints. People have had good days and bad days. But in general, I think this is a big year ahead for everybody. I want to encourage everybody out there that hasn't done their thing yet to just do it uh, because no time like the present. Seriously. I mean, this isn't cliche at all. Just do it. There's a lot of people out there that want to support you. We want to support you. And we hope that everybody can support us in return because we're all just trying to find our way and make some improvements and make some changes. And maybe we'll all contribute to one of those aha moments. Or maybe one of you listening will. Those light bulb moments where we say, whoa, why were we thinking about this thing in such a way when we found out there's another way? You know, just encourage everybody around you and have an awesome year. Yeah, I mean, I this I don't even know what I'm going to share for a fun fact about myself. I'll add it later. But um, okay, I finally thought of a fun fact that I'd like to share. So as you know, from this podcast, I study natural products, but I also treat it as a lifestyle. My partner is a biologist, and I'm a chemist. And we both study nature from different perspectives. But we incorporate this in our lives because we believe food is medicine. And we harvest almost all of the food that we eat from either our garden or from nature. And it really helps us build that connection to our food and to our medicine. I do completely agree with what Miyabi's saying about um, intent. I talk about this a lot, just natural products um, and any products that you're using are going to be more powerful if you also leverage the endocannabinoids the bodies are but the compounds our bodies making we can leverage that in different ways too and a lot of that's not just you know smoking weed whenever you're sad or something like that it's it's intentionally using something and then using other ways of feeling better too so i always make sure i go outside for an hour a day because that's my greatest therapy is going outside i use other stuff in my life all the time but nothing is more healing to me than going outside but i'm not saying that's going to work for everyone so Maybe for you, it's doing a puzzle for 20 minutes a day, and that makes you feel very good inside, and that can relieve some of the stress you're feeling. Experimenting with what makes you feel good in different situations and in different environments can be incredibly powerful, but you need to consciously put in that effort to try different things, try different environments, uh, see what makes you feel good. And that can be really powerful that I think a lot of people kind of pass off. Uh, 
as, you know, something that's not real, something that's not effective, but it can be extremely effective, especially if you learn to leverage it through time. I just want to add to what you just said. It just made me think more. I'm down my analogy rabbit hole again, but it's in giving that you receive, right? And if we think about the plants and the flower, the flower is sacrificing itself. It's it's harvested. It's its life is over, and then it's given to us, and we all use it for these different purposes, and we all love it, and we're talking about it every day, and there's a whole industry of millions of people talking about it every day, and what did the flower do? And what did we give for the flower? You know, nothing, but we got a lot from it, so maybe we can be more like flowers and just be nice to everybody around us, and, you know, it's in giving that you receive, so be nice, be cool, be well. You can tell our team is pretty spiritual over here. So you can be spiritual and a scientist. You can have uh, multiple different perspectives, and it doesn't take away from either of them thinking in different ways. Thanks so much for joining us. We hope you've learned a little bit of our two favorite things, flower and pharmacology. If you have any questions or suggestions for the podcast, please give us a shout on Instagram at smokinall. Or if you're a licensed processor who's interested in working with us, please email us at sales at smokinall.com. And now if you're interested in trying some yourself, you can go to profoundnaturals.com and purchase some hemp smokinall from us. If you want to support us in other ways, please share this podcast with any family, friends, or even local dispensaries. Or if you could review us wherever you listen to us, that'd be great. If you already have, thanks so much. Extra special thanks to Telfer C, John Van Dyke, Tabs24, Gerson, Someone from New Zealand, Surgeoner, C5X2C, Cool Bean King, Sync1, James T84, Airbender Andy, CK Dascam, Pimental Portfolio, Zzz, Maya1722, Laplia34, Beth in New Hampshire, Tony Rome, CJ Sloan, Old Geek1, QD1994, John the Bow, Abso Fruitly, Felly Cab, Samsonite55, Mr. Clean, LJM420, and Layman Stupid App. They are our favorite sesh members who always corner the bowl. Mad love, my friends. Thank you for the support, and we will see you next time on Smoke and Science. <laughs>